Have you ever written a mission statement for your life? Anybody ever done that? Mission statement? You guys are just kind of floating, drifting, no purpose, no point to your life. I did that. I... <laughs> I did that once. I, had, I hadn't thought about doing it, but I was at a, on a retreat and uh, had that experience, and, and we were given some time to go away and think about that and write it down. And, and some of it I knew intuitively. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of what I already knew about myself, but some of it I, I kind of had to go a little bit deeper and really think about that and put it into a kind of concise statement. And uh, um, it became kind of uh, motivating and clarifying for me to do that. And, and maybe at some point, you know, we'll will sort of facilitate that kind of experience because I think it's a great thing to be able to do. Well, the leadership of the church the last couple of uh, months has spent some time um, sitting down and thinking through, again, the mission of this church of Great Exchange, a church that is 10-plus years old now that began with a certain DNA and a certain sense of mission. And uh, I believe, you know, kind of joining you late here in the last few months, that... Um, that we're still on that mission, but we need to refresh. We always need to kind of refresh the way we say it so that it doesn't become a cliche. It doesn't become platitudes. And uh, you kind of reel it off by rote, and it doesn't really mean anything to you. So we've refreshed that statement. And then from there, what we have to do is when you have a mission, you automatically have a vision. Your mission is your platform. It defines who you are. A mission tells you where you want to end up. What would it be like if we fulfilled this mission? What would it look like? After all, it's a vision. It's visual. It's not just a statement. It's kind of multimedia. What is that picture of that preferred future that God has for us? If this is who we are, if this is how he's designed us, where are we going? And then, of course, in order to get from mission to vision, you've got to ultimately take action. Otherwise, we just have words on the screen. I'm going to put... I'm going to ask that we put those words up on the screen for our new uh, statement, new iteration of our, of our mission. And uh, there's five lines to it, and we're going to take five weeks, the next five weeks, and uh, unpack this a bit. And it'll just be introductory because we spend a, a, long, a lot of time thinking about this and working through this, and we really only understand it as we live it out. So the first line is, our mission to be is an authentic loving and vibrant community, which we're going to work on today. That sounds simple. We ought to be done in about two or three minutes, don't you think? <laughs> Fat chance. The second line, that partners with God, this isn't just something we're doing. Obviously, we're requiring Him to show us the way and for Him to empower us as we're on the way to becoming this. In transforming, there's a purpose to this, people of all cultural backgrounds and personal circumstances. Um, it's been the vision of this church, the mission of this church all along to be um, inclusive, to be multi-ethnic. That was explicitly, that is explicitly in our mission statement. This, you know, makes that clear. I think the guy wants me to move on, go a little faster here. Number four is up there. Into committed followers of Jesus Christ. That's, we're being transformed. Those of us who have come from all these backgrounds, all kinds of personal circumstances, some very favorable, some very unfavorable. All of us are swept up now into this process of transformation. We become, we are becoming committed followers of Jesus Christ. Finally, number five, who serve locally in our own community and globally. Words on a page. 
Let's put it away and look at it again in five years. That's what often happens with mission statements. Unless somehow they get into your heart, unless somehow there's something inspiring, and ultimately it requires a visual. We're not going to get to that today because we're still looking at the platform because, you know, you're looking at this for the first time. We're going to look now at that first line. Our mission is to be an authentic, loving, and vibrant community. So do you think we are? Does that make sense for us? Is this even possible for us? Is it a bit of a reach, a bit of a stretch? Of course it is. You bet it is. For any human community of any kind, this is a huge reach. But it is compelling. It is. Don't you want to be that? First of all, yourself. And secondly, wouldn't you like to be part of a community that is characterized by that? Authentic, loving, vibrant community. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 because we're going to look at the scriptural background, I think, and there are so many we could have chosen for this um, first line. And we're going to let that be ultimately the authority. It's not the mission statement. It's the Word of God that really helps us create our mission. And by the way, there is only one mission. Every Christian church has the same mission. Now, there are summary statements all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, um, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, From Micah, the prophet Micah stated it that way. We have the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Another way of talking about that overall mission, what we are to do with our lives, who we're who we are and what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to impact the folks around us. Um, the Great Commission, to go into all the world. And as we're going, we're to make disciples. We're to teach people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us and to embrace them, to welcome them. That's what the word baptism means. To really enfold them into this family and to change their lives by the power of God. There's one mission. The way we say it, has everything to do with our context, our culture, our timing, um, our, you know, who we are as a people, and how we sense God has called us to fulfill, to be part of that, that mission. The vision, again, is the projection of that mission. What will it look like? Can we visualize that? Otherwise, the mission stays kind of general and vague and theoretical until we begin to look down the line, at least at the next horizon, and say, okay, where are we going? What will it feel like? What will it taste like? What will it sound like when we are really experiencing this? It has to have an experiential edge. That's what a vision does. Now, I'm often asked, because I work with a lot of different churches, people will say, well, what do you, what do you believe in, Doug? Do you believe in a pastor-driven church? And, of course, when I'm the pastor, I do. No. I ultimately don't think that's the right answer. Do you believe in an elder-driven church? Do you believe in a congreg- you know, what, what do you believe in? What drives the church? And my answer is very simply, and I I believe it more and more all the time, I believe in a vision-driven church. We're not about personalities. We're not about politics. We're not about factions. uh, We're not about power plays. We're about the vision we believe Christ has given us. And we take it as sacred. We're still understanding that, but we believe He has delivered that to us, and all of us sublimate our personal desires and our personal need and our personal egos to something that's much larger than us. That's why it's important to have this mission and this picture of the future when this mission is fulfilled. We call it the vision. 
So listen to um, Paul as he talks about these qualities, the first, um, the first line of our mission statement in uh, chapter 3 of Colossians. I'm going to begin just before that because he says something. He says, take off your old self with its practices, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these, put on, all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To be authentic. There's an inauthentic self that is in you. The old self, the old nature is what the New Testament calls it. It's inauthentic. It's a fake. It's a fraud. It's full of pretense. Sometimes it self-aggrandizes and self-inflates to try to impress. And sometimes it shrinks the self to nothing um, and, and feels worthless. That's the old self. Now, I assume that that old self still raises its ugly head sometimes in your own life, and sometimes even in a congregation, a community of people. And uh, m- when my old self meets your old self, watch out. We got, we got trouble. Um, but there is a new self. There is a new creation. It is behind this word authenticity. It's not used here, but it's implied here. There's something authentic, something authorized by God, something God does to create a new you. Now, it's still you, I had a friend one time who was, you know, we were talking about new creation and transformation. Well, I, I, I don't want to lose myself. No, you won't lose yourself. You'll actually find yourself. You're going to lose what you don't want. You're going to lose what's not authentic and gain the reality of how God designed you to be. Do you even know who that is? Do you know that new creation? Do you know that new person? You are chosen by God. He made you, and he chose you. It's an amazing thing to feel like you're chosen. It's not because you've earned it, deserved it, auditioned for it. You're chosen by God. It's his decision. His heart of love reaches out to you right where you are, as you are, imperfect as you are, and chooses you to be his beloved child, beloved son, beloved daughter. Now, this is key to everything we're talking about. You cannot be authentic and yes, unless you understand how God looks at you, how he values you, how he treasures you, how he cherishes you, how he spares no expense to win you back when you've wandered off. That's the new self. Chosen by God. Chosen from out of all these backgrounds, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, which means religious or irreligious. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Economic class structure. 
Christ's love cuts across all of that. Christ is now all and is in all. Becomes everything to you. It's your new identity. He is your new identity. He becomes your new model, your role model. He empowers you. He is in you making this happen. By the way, barbarians and Scythians, you may not know about the Scythians. The the Scythians are those people in the ancient world that the barbarians called barbarians. Okay, they are the lowest, they are the scummiest. By the way, one of my favorite names for a church in Denver, Colorado, is called Scum of the Earth. That's the name of the church. It's for Scythians, whoever they were. And so we begin by eliminating all possibility of pretense here. Welcome to Scum of the Earth, you Scum of the Earth. Those of us who are sinners, those of us who are undeserving, those of us who have faults, who have failures, and that's all of us. And we're meeting the grace of God right here. So there's no possibility of pretense when you attend a church called Scum of the Earth. So I'm, I'm tempted to rename us as, what, as we're doing a new mission and vision here. And there's something beautiful and even sort of... Um, relieving about knowing you don't have to pretend that you're somebody you're not that you get to be right where you are and then let christ build you up from this core of this vision of this new person that you are in christ you are holy which means you are not only chosen but you're set apart for a very special purpose you're not just put on a shelf to look at you're you're engaged you're activated to become somebody who makes a difference who blesses other people in the name of christ and you are, and don't forget this, dearly loved, Paul writes. You are dear, not just loved. I mean, that, that would be enough, to be, but dearly loved. There's something very personal about that, and it reaches deeply into you. Do, you. do you know that experience of being dearly loved? How we long to be dearly loved. Um, to, be, to, to be chosen, to be favored, to have someone invest in us at that level. This is where it begins. That's how you become authentic. Your authentic self versus your inauthentic self. And we all need help. We all need discipling to get there. It doesn't just happen, and we don't just choose it, and we don't just work ourselves into that position by ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit at work in us, and it's brothers and sisters who encourage that, including the encouragement occasionally of the painful truth. Because if I love you, when I see your inauthentic self... I am saddened by that. And I want to be part of a process to take you from that place to the place where I know you want to go, even if at the moment you're upset and offended that I brought up the truth. If you know you are dearly loved, then that second, of course, characteristic, authentic, loving. You can't be loving unless you know you are dearly loved. You can't do it. You can't love unless you've been loved. You can't love unless you know what love is like. And some of us actually began with a bit of a deficit. We didn't know that. We may have had parents that provided for us, but did they love us? They may have loved us, but did they show us they loved us? They may have shown us they loved us, but it was inconsistent, and it may have been performance-based. And that's not truly love. It's not God's love. And that creates confusion and get you into another kind of game that makes it very difficult for you to love unconditionally, to love a variety of people, to love when it's difficult to love, to love people who are unlovable. He goes on to say, we're going to bear with each other because of this love. 
We're going to forgive each other. The Greek word is apheimi, which means to release. That really is what that means. It, it, it releases people from the debt they owe you, just as God has released you because of what Christ has done. You're released. Am I really? How come I don't feel it? Well, your feelings haven't caught up with the reality. You need to be discipled into that reality. And maybe the guilt is generalized into a kind of a shame so that, you know, I'm not even sure that, that I'm going to be a participant in any of this. I mean, it's, it, it's too late for me. I mean, my, my failures are, are fatal. God says otherwise. In fact, God can take you even at a point of death because he can empower resurrection. You can come back from the dead. You can come back from the worst failure, the worst shameful moment that you're not sure you can recover from. Bearing with each other, forgiving each other. Now, this gets pretty practical, you know, in the everyday mess of life. My dad and I used to attend this lecture series, first of all in San Francisco, and then it moved to Oakland. We hear people like Colin Powell and former President Bill Clinton and, and Tim Conway and other philosophers. You don't know who Tim Conway is. Never mind. The old Carol Bonnet show. We, we had a whole variety of folks who showed up. Bill O'Reilly, you know, all, all kinds of people you never knew from the left or the right, and it was always fascinating. My dad and I loved to go to this series. It was once a month, and uh, there were two price levels. There were the cheap seats, which, of course, we had, and uh, the, the lecture started at 8 o'clock, but uh, the doors opened at 7, so we were always there at 7 at the front. It was kind of part of our routine, and as soon as the doors opened, we kind of rushed to find these seats on the side that were available to, you know, to, to people. So we were almost, you know, in the middle, in the front, of course, are the expensive seats, you know, for the elite. Um, so we were there one night. I don't even remember who we were seeing that night, who we were listening to. And uh, we got some pretty good seats, about the third row. And here's, you know, we're sitting here, and here's the, the platform right here. There's, you know, 2,000 people that, that are going to be in the room. It's a big Bay Area event. And uh, sitting there, I'm sitting at the aisle because I like the aisle seat because I got long legs and, you know, that's a good place for me to stretch a little bit. And about 10 minutes to 8, now the, uh, um, the aristocracy comes in, okay, that have paid more for their seats and they have reserved seats. Ours is open seating. And uh, they're, they're kind of flooding in and we, you know, sort of expect them to come in at the, at the very late. And they're usually a little better dressed than the rest of us, you know, and that's okay. They're sitting there in the middle, you know, in the privileged seating. And a guy walks up and stands right next to me in the, in the aisle and looks down at me and says, you're in my seat. You need to move. Now, I don't know if you know my personality, but that is not a wonderful moment when that happens. Um, I, I get a little uptight, a little reactive when someone suddenly challenges me like that, and they're right, they're towering over me, breathing down on me. And so involuntarily, I stood up, because I don't like anybody on top of me, okay? And I turned to him, and now he's one foot away from me, and he's, you know, very well dressed, and he's this guy who wants my seat. You're sitting in my seat. I said, sir, quote-unquote, sir, um, this is open seating. It's first come, first serve. So I, I think you've made a mistake, which I thought was pretty self-controlled for me. He said, with a kind of contemptuous laugh in his voice, he said, I've been coming here for years. I know my seats. You're in my seat. You need to move right now. 
okay, I got nowhere to go. He's standing right here blocking my way out. He's making a demand. He's embarrassing me in front of all these people. And everything in me wanted to, what do you think? I mean, he's right in my face. You know, he's making a, a, a completely, uh, uh, you know, wrong demand. I just wanted to push him away, and I wanted permission. <clears throat> you ever look for permission? Because I'm 99.9% sure I'm in the right. There's only just a, sh- a slight shadow of a doubt because he was so dogmatic and so certain and so dog- demanding of me. But there was a divine intervention in this moment. Because my character can go in a different direction here very, very quickly. I'm looking at him, and suddenly, as God intervened in my own heart, and I occasionally pray that he will intervene. I don't always know what that means. If I knew what it means, I probably wouldn't pray it. Because it means I've got to change. It means I have to endure some things I don't want to endure. It means I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to become a different kind of person, actually the better version of Doug the way he designed me. So I prayed, and at that moment, for some reason, I got a look at him, and I'm looking like in a mirror at somebody who's just as arrogant as me. And I know that kind of pushy, controlling personality because I got some of that in me. I don't need to hear any men's from the second row here. (laughs) And so at that moment, with that recognition that this person I'm supposed to bear with, according to Scripture, has become unbearable, I said to him, "Um, I'm not sure who's right. It could be you. It could be me. Why don't we get an usher and kind of sort this out? And I kind of relaxed, which is always a good thing to do, to find the kind of peace you didn't know you had. You didn't know it was possible. I'm listening to God at that moment, which is not always what I do. And so he says, looking at me, never, never losing eye contact, his wife's standing over here, and he points at her, and he says, go get the usher. And I'm thinking, what a lucky lady. <laughs> and so she trots off, you know, obediently to get, the, to get the usher. And meanwhile, we're still standing there, you know, face to face. He's not backing off. I've got nowhere to go. I've got people behind me who are ready for a peasant's revolt. <laughs> if I will just lead the charge, if I hit him, believe me, there would be loud cheers behind me. I could sense the bloodlust coming up out of this crowd that had been wronged for all these years. But instead of that, I said, while we're waiting, do you want to sit down in my chair? The chair he was demanding. He said, no, I think I'll just stand here. Okay? Then we'll just wait. The usher came. The usher checked his ticket, um, reminded him he was in the wrong section. And he just kind of whirled around. He took about five steps, steps. He looked back and he said, I suppose I should apologize. And then he walked away. <laughs> I wanted, the first thing I wanted was permission for, to get relief any way I could get relief. And if that means pushing him out of the way, if that means insulting him, if that means yelling at him. And even at the end, there's something in me, because I have a little sarcastic side, sorry to admit this in front of you, little sarcastic side that if I can kind of hurt you, you know, with a little verbal barb, and I'm pretty good at that, darn it, it's a gift I have, you know, and at that moment I thought of a number of things I could have said, which <clears throat> not all of which I can repeat right now, 
I think the crowd was a little disappointed. It didn't come to blows. I sat down. My dad, who's sitting down next to me and has known me well pretty much all my life, turned to me and said, wow. Wow, you handled that really well. And I thought, why can't I do this all the time? I mean, even when I'm under pressure. Because when you're you're under pressure, the real you tends to come out. You can claim you're authentic and you're loving and, uh, and all that, but it's under pressure. I, I need help to become the person I want to be, the person God designed me to be. And so do you. We need a lot of help for this kind of transformation to take place. To be authentic, to be loving. To be loving in such a way, and Paul puts it this way, put on some new clothes. This, this wardrobe is more becoming for you. And what's in this wardrobe? What, what, is, what does this new clothing look like? Well, I want you to be compassionate. I want you to learn compassion. And I did in that moment feel a little bit of compassion for this guy because I've been in his place and I've made a fool out of myself and I've, I've said too much and I've, I've been wrong and I, I hate that. So I know what that's like. Compassionate, kind, Offering him my seat, although there was a little bit of a dig with that, I have to admit. (laughs) Go ahead, take my seat. You're only going to have to get up in a minute. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Is that you? Is that who you are? Is that how others know you and experience you? Are you that loving person are we together we get to we get to practice this all the time right here this is our laboratory the body of christ the family of god where else we should be practicing this right here so we get really good at this so we can become what we claim is our mission these aren't just words on a page words on a screen you know nice sounding kind of inspiration this gets tested in the nitty-gritty you know in those little tight little niches where you don't like to be and you find out who you are, and you find out what you really find out is God comes through for you. You know, cry out to me in that moment. And begin along the way to practice this so it becomes what becomes sort of a stretch becomes kind of habit, a holy habit. Something that becomes now part of your character, part of your nature. And, uh, you know, it feels good. It, it feels good. Even if it's painful in the moment, it feels good to know you're actually making some progress. You're actually growing. You're actually maturing here to bear with other people to forgive other people as god in christ has forgiven you to become vibrant which means alive alive exclamation point you love we love to be around people who are alive who are engaging who kind of lean into life and who are kind of honest about all the the difficulties of that and honest about their need for God and honest about the failings and excited about the success, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice and all of those other descriptions in Scripture of a person who's fully alive. A man, a woman fully alive is the glory of God. It's the most beautiful image. God looked at what he made this human creation, and said it is very good. This is what we're intended to be. We're intended to be this picture. 
very good, very beautiful, very much blessing the people who are around us. You can do it if you're quiet and more reserved. You can do it if you're more outgoing. You can do it with whatever gifts and talents. You can do it with whatever liabilities and disadvantages you have. As Christ in you brings you to life, brings you back to life, even if in this moment you feel kind of dead, kind of distressed, there's a choice that we make. And if it's your mission, and you say, well, good for the church, that's their mission. No, we're hoping to convince you that this is to our benefit collectively together and to all of us individually. To be vibrant, to be loving, to be authentic, kind of in that order. Authentic, loving, vibrant. If you're authentic, who you are on the inside, if you're vibrant, if, 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 you're, um, if you're authentic, if you're loving, then because you're authentically expressing Christ, you will vibrate. You will have an effect. There will be a difference that is made out there. And this all happens in community. So, Jeff, are you ready for us? Okay. We've got only a few minutes, and we've got about an hour more of material. I'm kidding. But there's something coming your way, and I want to thank my dear friend Jeff on staff because there was a mistake on this page, and it was all passed out. There was one of these pages at every seat as you came in. We collected them all and took them away because me, Mr. Perfectionist, one of my character flaws, or maybe it's the greatest thing about me. I haven't decided yet. There was a mistake that I thought was confusing and I didn't want to be confusing. So what does this look like? And I wish we were now starting a whole day's worth of... Uh, of a workshop on this because the more I got into this, the more I realized this isn't just the first line of a mission statement. This is calling us into a situation that um, if we looked at it seriously, this is what spiritual maturity, I believe, is. If you go to the very center of the page, to be an authentic, loving, and vibrant community, yes. Colossians chapter 3, and notice it's the whole section from verses 1 to 17. I hope you look at that again sometime. To be someone who is lovingly engaged. That's what we're talking about. Someone who is lovingly engaged with other people. And I, ch I chose the word engaged. I could have chose connected. That's a good word too. We use that word a lot, connection. We're looking for connection. But to be engaged means not only connected, but actively in pursuit of developing of these relationships. And by the word engage, from the French, engagier, Gage means pledge. It means wager. This is risky business to be lovingly engaged. You know, at that moment in that auditorium with 2,000 people, all of whom I think were watching us, um, there, was, there was a huge risk that I felt. It turns out, of course, the greater risk is going in one of the other extremes. The greater risk is starting a fight. And even though it would, have been, it would have felt good for about five seconds to smash him, 
I'll give you that five seconds of pleasure. It would have felt good, maybe even ten seconds, maybe even a whole minute. <laughs> to just clock him, to just knock him out, to sort of stand up for all the people who have suffered injustice, like me. And just, you know, exact my revenge. Some of us tend to go in that direction. That's not God's picture of you. Some of us go in the other direction. We give away our seat all the time, even when we have a right to it. We let people walk all over us, and we never talk back. We haven't found our voice yet. That's not God's will for you. To be lovingly engaged requires an awful lot of courage and, of course, the very person of Christ living in you and through you and empowering this new creation that you are called to be. Now look at the elements around it that make this happen. Foundationally, of course, intimacy with God. And there's a bunch of passages, that, 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 a bunch of expressions and, and phrases underneath that that describe that. This is foundational. This takes time. You're saying, what does that have to do with uh, the, uh, you know, the, the rough and tumble of real life? It has everything to do with that because you're developing your relationship so the relationship is strong when you need it, when you're out there during the day. You're not starting from scratch in an emergency, in a crisis, in a conflict. No, you're already developing that person that you are in relationship with God. God is with you. God is going with you. God is someone you can rely on, and you know that because you're with him all the time. You're developing that sense constantly of God being with you. And you're listening to him, and you're practicing that. Intimacy with God. Go on the, uh, the left side of that diamond there. Moral character. Integrity. You know, it talks about in this passage, you know, all these wonderful virtues. Put them all together. Live one life. Don't live a life of compromise. Don't allow shadows. Live one life. Be that person who has that Christ-like character. And that's built by a series of decisions that we make and constructing boundaries around us, making sure that we're not in violation. We want to live righteous lives. And then on the other side, there's something called emotional health. Emotional health. Um, and we have to be healed from some things that make us unhealthy. As I said earlier, if you weren't loved, if you weren't treated with respect, if you weren't um, bonded with parents and others who were meant to be close to you, or if they overstepped boundaries and violated you, there's some healing that needs to happen. You are not emotionally healthy. You can't be, but that's God's desire. Well, what do we need? We need counseling one-on-one -on -one intensively. Do we need a small group conversation? Do we need good friends? Do we need to study the Word? Yes, all that. At various times, all of that. There are all those resources to get us honestly looking at where we're hurting, where we continue to be stuck, how we're not getting out of this bind that we're in, and sometimes we're our own worst enemy. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. Emotional health. That's part of God's will for you, too. At the very end of that um, statement, very similar in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the last one is self-control, self-management. That was one of the greatest challenges for me in that moment. And by the way, there have been many other moments in my life when I have to limit that old self that wants to rise up and you know, take his revenge or, or take you know, hold of his fantasy or whatever it is and to say, no, that's not who I am anymore. And I have some boundaries. I have, and I have people around me who hold me accountable. And people around who affirm me and remind me who I am and where I'm going. 
And then on top, something called relational intelligence or relational competence, being able to read other people. You say, well, what is, what is that, psychology? Well, I, I suppose it's part of that, but it's something deeper than that. It's about being sensitive to people. It's about having compassion. It's about having empathy. It's about caring what's going on in them. Yes, I'm self-aware, but I want to be aware of other folks and what it is they need because I want to represent Christ to them. All of that is important. All of that needs to be developed. All of that is about discipleship as we become more and more mature. And by the way, you think you can be spiritually mature and not have emotional health? You're wrong. Spiritually mature and your moral character has severe flaws in it? No, not going to happen. Spiritual maturity without intimacy with God? No, of course not. Spiritual maturity that doesn't lead you into loving engagement? No, of course it leads you there exactly. Because the Christian faith is all about relationship. Relationship with God, first and foremost, relationship with each other. If you say you love God but you hate your brother, you say you love God but you're indifferent towards your brother or sister, you love God but your caring has certain limitations on it with other people, you don't know much about the love of God yet. Dorothy Day put it this way. You can only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. Did you hear that? You can only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. These loves operate in parallel because it's the same love. Because the love of God, as it gets inside of you, begins to change your attitudes toward everybody else. And that includes your attitude toward yourself. Because loving your neighbor as yourself implies, I've got to know who I am. I've got to know how valuable I am. People who are rough on other people, who are judgmental, tend to be really rough and judgmental on themselves. That's how it happens. So this first line, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot there. To be authentic, loving, and vibrant as a community, which means all of us individually and all of us together. I can be all these things by myself. The only problem is when I start relating to you. I can be loving in my heart. I can be loving in my intentions. I can be authentic all by myself, but... All of a sudden, in relationship with you, this is the real test. This is, the, this is where it gets tried. This is where we are, we are proving that we are, in fact, God's person. That Christ is making his way, having his way with us in our own lives. So we're at the very beginning of this experience. It's five weeks, not going on forever. But we're going to look at each line and what each line means to each of us and to us as a church and we're going to think about how we practice this together and then we haven't even touched on it what the vision is where do we go from here how do we in the next little while in the next year or so with a new pastor coming along the way how do we get from here to there what would that look like and we can only have you know the barest you know picture or glimpse of what that will be it's it's a it's a glimpse at that mountain range out there. It's the horizon. And we're going to be talking about that as well because there's already some things happening that are taking us in this direction. Now, Terrence might be here somewhere. Oh, okay. He oh, there he is right here. Okay. I'm looking at him in the very back. And one of the things that we're going to do as we start is we want to find out some things about us, about you. And uh, Terrence is going to make this very clear how you can participate in that. And then I'm going to come back up in one minute. Yeah. 
Thanks, Doug. Um, as Pastor Doug was saying, we are on a mission to find out who we are as a church. And one of the ways that we can do that is uh, we are going to actually do a survey. I know you guys have been doing a few surveys the past couple months, but this one is to really find out who we are as a church, each one of us, and how that relates to the whole body of Christ as GRX. And so what we're going to be doing is tomorrow um, we're going to be sending out emails. We're going to be putting it in the X-Flash. We'll put it on our website. There will be a link to a, a survey, uh, and it basically is a survey that will take 10 minutes max, very quick, but we ask that you please just take the time to do it. It's mostly just clicking. Um, there's not much, too much typing, so it's mostly clicking. We try to make it as, as simple as we can, but it's asking you guys what your spiritual gifts are, what your passions are, and really figuring out who we are as a church. And so that is definitely something that we would really encourage each of you to uh, participate in in, these, in the next couple weeks. So look out for an email tomorrow. If you don't get that email, hopefully you'll get in the X-Flash. If not, go to our website and, and look there. There will also be a link on there. So, but thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. Please, uh, please help us with that. That will be helpful just in terms of a bit of a reality check. So where are we? Where are we going? We've kind of set some parameters. I hope it sounds interesting, intriguing. In fact, I'm going to ask you to consider doing something. If you have right now in your mind a question about this so far, if you have a comment about this so far, um, I would invite you to email me. What's my email address? I have no idea what it is here. What is it? It's, there's nobody in the room that can help me right now. Say that again. Doug Dot Stevens, because Dot's my middle name, <laughs> at grx.org. It's on your, um, your program. It's on the back. I would love to hear because I sometimes feel like I'm up here by myself and I can, I can read your minds. I know exactly what you're thinking. I, of course, do not know what you're thinking. I would love to hear, especially as we start this series. Now, in some ways, I shouldn't be doing this. The uh, so-called interim pastor or transitional pastor should not meddle in such deep stuff. But this is for us, I think, a clarification of where we are, and that's important during a transition. And maybe even a sense that we're further along than we thought in some ways. And in other ways, we've forgotten some things that are valuable. And if I were the pastor that became a prospect for this position, I would like to know that this church hasn't just been sitting here waiting for their Savior to come. The Savior already has come, by the way. We're not looking for the pastor to be Messiah and tell us who we are. I would like, if I was that prospect, to come in and say, these folks have a real sense of who they are and a sense of momentum, and they're working on it, and I want to join them. I want to hit the ground running with them. And you're going to find probably the healthiest and the strongest and, the, and exactly the right pastor if we're in this process. So I withdraw my apology for working on this mission and vision, and I invite you to participate with us. One more thing I want you to know, on May 20th, which is the last Sunday of this series, we're going to have a forum, we're going to serve lunch, and uh, you can participate in that, and we're going to have an open forum on all of this to make sure we understand it. We want to hear your ideas in relationship to this, uh, both theoretically and practically. And finally, we're going to invite you to participate as we continue to do what God has called us to do. And uh, I'm really excited about this. I'm hoping you are as well and will become even as we explore this and dive into this. So 
Let me pray for us. Lord, this is one of the ways we worship you. By giving you our lives, by giving you and becoming that community that you've called us to become, by not only experiencing this, but expressing this. Paul talks about the peace of Christ. Give us your peace, Lord. Talks about expressing the word of Christ in all these different ways, God. We can teach each other, but never teaching what we aren't ourselves learning, never going beyond what we ourselves know by experience. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. We do need to teach each other. We do need to admonish each other and challenge each other with the truth, even when that truth is painful. Earning the right to do that because we're loving each other. And singing. This passage is even about that. It's about everything. Whatever we do, Lord, you've asked us to do it with you in mind, to do it in the name of, in the honor of, in a way that would honor Jesus Christ. Honoring Him amongst ourselves and honoring Him, Lord, out in the world. Forgive us for forgetting and for settling for less and being on a life that's sort of aimless or self-focused. We renounce all of that now, Lord. We want to be on Your mission We do believe it's sacred. We believe ultimately it's the key to our own joy and to our own fulfillment. You have made us for this. And thank you that we get to go with others on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.